If you'd all please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we'll be reading from verses 1 to 5. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In the previous passages of David's life that we have been studying, David has come across very, very positively. Ever since he is a child, he is shown as loving God and following him earnestly, being courageous and brave, trusting God in times of danger, and being mindful of God in times of peace, and wanting to do more to honour God. But in this chapter, things change drastically. We see a sudden descent into sin that causes untold destruction in several people's lives. David goes from being a paragon of godly living that we are to emulate to being truly villainous, engaging in extreme sin, lust, adultery, lies, scheming and murder. This happens at breakneck speed as his poor decisions lead from one catastrophic mistake to the next. Because of the severity of sin on display in this chapter, it can be possible for us to miss the catalyst for this whole tragedy, to see the exact point that it started to go wrong for David. It's written in the very first verse. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. And verse 1 ends with the note, but David remained at Jerusalem. This seems like such a small thing. It's easily missed in the passage. But the way that David's presence in Jerusalem is told to us, emphasized twice in the verse, and framed as a criticism, it tells us that there was no acceptable reason for David to be away from the war. His choice to stay away was a direct failure to perform his responsibilities as a king. King David, the king of Israel, was not where he was supposed to be. His duty as the leader of Israel was to be with his troops in battle. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we read how David's predecessor, King Saul, even after the Spirit of God had abandoned him, was with his troops in the Israelite camp when David fought Goliath. 
the king's place was to be with his army, to lead them against God's enemies. In leading his people to victory, King David would be proving that his appointment as the leader of Israel was correct. It was the king's personal business to direct and to conduct war, to engage in negotiations and diplomacy, to accept surrenders or reject peace terms. David could not do any of that effectively from Jerusalem. He should have been on the battlefield with his men. Instead, David reclined on his couch in his palace, indulging himself in luxury, while Joab and his army were camping in the open field, according to Uriah in verse 11. This avoidance of duty made David vulnerable to finding himself in a situation he shouldn't have been in. By ignoring his responsibilities, he opened himself up to unnecessary temptation. I'm sure we've all heard the phrase, the devil finds work for idle hands. It's a traditional expression, it's not a verse in the Bible, but we can see from this passage that the phrase is not without some truth. Had David been where he was supposed to be with his army, he would not have seen Bathsheba, and the entire situation that followed could have been completely avoided. We may not be kings, but we still all have responsibilities in our lives. We have duties at our work to our employer, to other employees and to our customers. We have duties at home to our families and to our friends. And as Christians, we have duties at church to other church members and to God. We are not to ignore our duties. We are commanded to work hard and to embrace our responsibilities. Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 commands us, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. And Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 state, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These verses tell us that our Christian witness is not just given through direct sharing of the gospel, but is also shown through our good works, our positive attitudes, our reliability and helpfulness, our care for others and trustworthiness. We show all these by being responsible and doing our duties. The book of Proverbs is full of warnings of the consequences of laziness and of not applying ourselves. To give just two examples out of many, Proverbs chapter 10 verse 5 states, He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. And chapter 18 verse 9 says, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. It is part of our Christian duty to not neglect our earthly duties. Doing so is a bad witness to others. 
it will open us up to physical and to spiritual problems, as it did with David. We should learn from King David's mistake here and not fall into the same trap as he did. Do not stay in Jerusalem when you should be on the battlefield. Put the necessary effort into doing your job properly. It doesn't mean we should be all become workaholics, but we shouldn't be avoiding work that we are supposed to do. We should aim to complete all of our duties and our responsibilities to the best of our ability. That will help us to live godly lives. We'll go back to the passage now in 2 Samuel and read from verse 6 to the end of the chapter. It says, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept on the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today and also tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie in his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall? so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab has sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us, 
and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the, arch the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your t attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Remember that this is the same David who stood against Goliath, who refused to kill King Saul when Saul was trying to kill David. The same David who is called a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. David in his early life brought great glory to God's name and served him honorably with amazing fervor and zeal. Yet he falls so quickly and so easily into this sin. Even as Christians, we are still fully capable of terrible sin. We are not immune to doing wrong. We are not infallible. And therefore, we need to be very careful to police our own lives and to make sure that we are not walking willingly into temptation, that we are not putting ourselves in situations that leave us vulnerable. We should also not become proud when looking at other people whose sin has caused suffering in their lives. Again, another traditional expression comes to mind, there but for the grace of God go I. We should be wary of the fact that it is God's grace and his mercy that has saved us from our sin and his Holy Spirit who helps us resist temptation not by our own strength, but by the strength of God. This passage gives us the perfect example of how sin can destroy our lives, as is told to us in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is exactly what happens here. In verse 1, David neglects his duty. In verses 2 and 3, he lustfully views Bathsheba from his palace. Verse 4, he commits adultery. Verses 14 to 17, he schemes to cover up his affair and deceives Uriah. Or sorry, verse 6 to 13, he schemes to cover up his affair and deceives Uriah. And verses 14 to 17, he commits murder, dragging his commander Joab into the sin. Finally, in verse 27, he marries Bathsheba to cover up the whole affair. With each step trying to cover up his sin, David is involving and affecting more and more people in more serious ways, and the consequences of his actions 
get worse and worse for those around him until there is the literal death of Uriah. This same template has been played out countless times in human history and probably a few times in our own lives, although probably not or look probably without ending in someone's death. Have we ever told a simple small lie to avoid punishment or blame for something? And then we find that we've had to lie further and manipulate in order to cover it up multiple times. We get caught in our sin and dragged further and further into covering up the initial problem as the consequences of exposure get greater and greater with each successive cover-up. The immediate consequences of David's sin and cover-up were terrible. Uriah, a loyal subject and a great warrior, was dead. Verse 17 tells us that many other men also died in the deliberately treacherous military maneuver that David had organized to kill Uriah. Bathsheba was coaxed into engaging in adultery and then she lost her husband. David's commander Joab and perhaps other military personnel along with him were made to organize a murder and David's palace servants and guards would no doubt have known of the whole of David's affair, and this was a terrible witness to them. All of these problems happened because David failed to guard against temptation, and after he had given into sin, he then tried to avoid the consequences of his actions. We need to ask how we can avoid David's mistake, and the answer is simple. To resist temptation, we need to stay close to God. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus knows exactly what it is like to be tempted with sin. He has experienced it. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 31, as part of the Lord's prayer, Jesus prays, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 40, when talking to the disciples, Jesus instructs them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. I wonder how often do we pray fervently and earnestly that we will not be tempted? Because Jesus instructs us to do exactly that as part of our prayers. We should, when we are praying, be requesting that God remove temptation from us and give us the strength to overcome it when it does happen. The study and understanding of God's word can also help us to resist temptation. Psalm 119 verse 11 tells us, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus, when he was tempted, quoted scripture to subdue his temptation. We should also try to be mindful of God. There can be times when we forget God, even as Christians. We can fall out of habit of praying or reading the Bible, and suddenly a day or two days or even more may pass when we don't even give God a serious thought. We get too distracted by everything going on in our lives that we just do not have time to properly engage with God 
and he stops becoming a factor in the decisions that we make. We don't think about him before we make any choices. That's extremely dangerous because we are not considering what God wants us to do. Instead, we are relying on our own wisdom, our own values and our own judgment to do what is right. And we are inherently flawed and sinful as people. King David, in seeing Bathsheba, only considered what he desired. His reaction would have been much different had he considered what God wanted. Compare David's actions to the actions of Joseph, who in Genesis chapter 39 was tempted by Potiphar's wife to commit adultery. Joseph's response is to say in verse 9, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 warns, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Temptation is probably the biggest threat to us being effective, godly Christians. We need to take action, active effort, so that we are able to avoid it if possible and resist it when necessary. While we keep this in mind, we should be careful in how we view the sins of David. I don't want to give the impression that David's first sins were small and didn't really matter much, as if only his later sins are to be criticized, or that we should only avoid the little sins in case they cause us to progress to bigger sins. The Bible is very, very clear that no sin is small or unimportant. No sin can be excused. James chapter 2 verse 10 tells us, For whoever keeps the whole law but feels in one point has become a point accountable for all of it. If we take it as, as an example, David's viewing of Bathsheba on the roof in verse 2, it's a sin you could almost rationalise as being not that bad because it all happens in David's mind. He didn't directly seem to hurt anyone from it. Bathsheba was completely unaware that she had been observed. And if it had stopped there, you may think, well, nothing really happened. The first sin doesn't seem bad compared to the direct adultery that followed. And yet, Jesus explicitly tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In the eyes of God, where David's righteousness was concerned, the difference between the two sins is nothing. They are one and the same because there are no small sins. Anyone who has looked lustfully at a woman is just as guilty of sin as someone who has acted on those intentions and engaged in adultery physically. We may then look at David's murder of Uriah and think that that's the ultimate sin here. That's the one that everything was leading up to, the one that really counts. 
the one that would make David an evil person in our eyes. But spiritually, Jesus again tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Has there ever been someone that you just couldn't stand? Someone you really despised uh, every time they went into your, came into your presence? Have you ever gotten so angry with someone that you lashed out at them physically? Then Jesus is telling us that that sin makes you just as bad as David's murder. You are as guilty as sin as he was, and just as unworthy for heaven as David was. One sin is enough to condemn us, and we are all guilty of sin. To look at the actions of David or of anyone else and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as them, is a complete error in understanding God. His standard is absolute perfection. And Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that we have already failed to meet it, saying, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We'll move on to our final reading now, which is 2 Samuel chapter 12, reading from verses 1 to 14. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you and your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes 
and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to him, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. After a chapter where David has shown no regard for God, there were going to be negative consequences. David's infidelity and his poor family values sowed the seeds for future infighting, murder and rebellion of his sons against him and against each other. God often lets our sin run its course in our lives. Do not think that when you ask for forgiveness, God will miraculously resolve all of the problems that your sin has created. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 warns us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sowed, sows, that will he also reap. Yet amazingly, this passage is also one of repentance. Where Nathan confronts David to his face, and David immediately caves, and he admits his sin. Here we see God's loyalty and his love to David. Even though David had forgotten God, God did not abandon him. God could have left David in exactly the same way that he left Saul. He would have been fully justified in doing so. Much more than that, the penalty for adultery and murder was death. God would have been justified killing David on the spot. But he showed mercy and grace to David, perhaps because of how willing David was to admit what he had done without trying to excuse it. David's acceptance of his own guilt is the first thing he does right since chapter 11 started. It can be human nature to try and excuse our sin. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, when Samuel confronts Saul's sin to tell Saul that God's spirit is abandoning him, Saul blames his soldiers for the disobedience that he took part in. Accepting guilt is an uncomfortable part of life. No one wants to admit to being wrong, but the Bible tells us that we are all guilty of sin and that only by acknowledging that guilt can we be saved from punishment. Had David refused to admit his sin, then Nathan's message may have been much, much more severe. God would not have forgiven an unrepentant David. In exactly the same way, God will only forgive our sins if we are truly repentant of them. 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 say, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even though David had sinned greatly and done all of these terrible things, he was able to be forgiven by God. 
because of Jesus' death on the cross, he was able to look forward to the promised Messiah and to trust that God would provide a sacrifice for his sin. We can look back with the certain knowledge that Jesus' death can save us, that if we ask him to forgive us, Jesus will take our sin as if it were his own, so that our punishment is cancelled out by his punishment. This gift of salvation is offered freely to everyone, but this does not happen automatically for everyone. We can only be saved by Jesus if we are truly sorry for our sin and for our betrayal of God. David's repentance was accepted and he was saved because he did not avoid his guilt. Unlike King Saul, David was truly remorseful. He understood his sin was a betrayal of God which required punishment, and he was sorry. David in chapter 11 was the epitome of a bad example. He's the exact opposite of how we are supposed to be. But in chapter 12, we should acknowledge his one redeeming moment, his acceptance of guilt and desire to be forgiven of his sins. That is something that we should all copy and follow. We'll move on then um, to our closing song, closing hymn, which is Rock of Ages. <laughs>